Welcome to Xanadu Gallery's Red Dot Podcast. I'm Jason Horsch, owner of Xanadu Gallery, publisher of Red Dot Blog, and host for this podcast. Today, an interview with sculptor Paige Bradley. Thank you for joining us, Paige. Thank you, Jason. Give us a little bit of background. Uh, where is your studio located, and where are you from originally? My studio is currently located in Stamford, Connecticut, which is about an hour outside of New York City. And I live in the Greenwich, Connecticut area. Uh, I am originally from Carmel, California, West Coast. So that's quite a, uh, a jump to go from the uh, quiet, calm West Coast to the East Coast. Yeah, I've, I feel like I've been around a bit, though. You know, I, um, I left Carmel, California to go to New York City to just um, explore kind of the big time. You know, uh, Carmel is very artsy and, and quaint, but it has a very low ceiling. And I wanted to see if I could keep up with the, the big guns, uh, so to speak, in New York City. And uh, that's where I kind of moved away from the West Coast lifestyle to the East Coast. And I fell in love with it, uh, the Four Seasons. I still miss California quite a bit, and I go there frequently. But I guess I, in that respect, I'm a little bi-coastal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And on your um, website, uh, on the, the biographical sketch, you mentioned that you've been creating from a, a very early age, the age of nine. Where did that initial interest in art come from? Are there other artists in your family? I do have architects in my family, but I have to say that most of uh, the inspiration I I owe to my mother being an elementary school teacher and seeing potential and knowing how to feed it. Also, uh, growing up as an only child uh, without any real children as neighbors on top of a mountaintop with no television, I kind of had to use creativity to keep me busy and entertained. And it is in that that I started drawing. Uh, my, I drew my friends. I drew people. <laughs> I, drew, I was always wanting to be more connected to a group, a gathering. And so I would just go to paper and pencil to find that uh, as a young person. And so you mentioned um, your mother um, kind of fostering that uh, interest and talent. And who were some other important teachers and, and mentors earlier in, in your education and in your art career? And, and what do you feel like you gained from them? Yeah, I, um, it was when I was nine that I was walking through town with my mom and looking in the windows of the art galleries. In Carmel, there's quite a few. And I just knew when I looked in the gallery windows uh, that I did not know how to make a bronze sculpture, but I knew that I could do it if somebody could teach me. And that was hard to find along the way. So it was about seven years later after knowing that I, like knowing from, from the center of my bones that I could do it, that I actually got the opportunity to do it because a local bronze foundry was running a competition for high school students. And his name is Larry Fisher. And he was uh, very instrumental in creating my adoration to bronze sculpture because he was the one that cast my first bronze sculpture when I was 17. And it was, uh, I never really stopped after that. You know, I found other artists that I could learn from along the way. And then, you know, reading books about Michelangelo and traveling and living in Florence, Italy for a year and going to Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Art and where the Rodin Museum is. I just constantly immersed myself in 
all the great artists before me and tried to become the best student I could become. And obviously, uh, sculpting and, and casting sculpture in particular, it, it's a big deal. It's not like uh, you just decided to paint and could pick up a, a brush and, and a canvas and go to work. Casting is a very intensive uh, process. So, um, you know, what challenges did you face early in your career getting your work cast? I'm laughing, Jason, because uh, there's so many times where I'm trying to lift, uh, you know, a 200 pound, 200 pound sculpture and thinking, why didn't I just become a painter? <laughs> it's a common refrain I hear among sculptors, certainly. Yeah. Or, you know, crating. It's always uh, such a challenge um, to crate and everything. Well, and then, the casting process itself, the time involved yeah. and, and the, uh, the, the intensity of the process. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I fell in love with the process in a lot of ways, too, because um, it takes, you know, a community of artists to make a bronze. It's not just me. And I'm, I really don't come from a place of ego with my work. I come with um, that I need a lot of people to help make it a reality. And in that, I think um, my work becomes more about, about more than just myself. Um, and I, I love that process because I, I give great homage to all the other artisans that work on, on the work itself as well. Plus, I'm, I feel like uh, not only in this time and space where I have other people working on my work as well to make it a permanent reality that will last for eons, because bronze does, it just, I'm also becoming aware that I have joined a family of people since like, you know, 2000 BC that have been doing this process around the world. And these bronze sculptures are still around. Uh, and it's pretty remarkable to know that I feel like I've, you know, joined hands through the millennia with the people that cast bronze from all of these eras. Uh, and, and it's even more important today to do it because now I need to speak about what, what it's like to be a bronze sculptor today or be an artist today. And, and put those meanings in such an ancient media. And I'll be posting images of your work to the website with the podcast, but tell us a little bit about the work itself and how you developed your, your um, interest in your subject matter and, and the evolution of your style. Okay, well, I always um, felt connected to the figure, and it's probably because I grew up very much alone that I always wanted to have the fi figures near me and connect. It's all about connection. It's all about being able to find a soulmate or to feel understood, to feel known, to feel connected. And I wanted to also take my artwork and break any uh, preconceptions about what sculpture is. So I try to take the new technology and integrate it into such the ancient media of bronze. And I've done that by making it move, such as hanging it. Um, I even did a piece with a ball that is strung up with a sterling silver chain, so it actually moves. Um, I wanted it to be see-through. I've been using some different kinds of materials uh, that are not bronze, but uh, look like they're resin, so they look like ice, and you can see through them. I wanted to make it look like it was liquid or stretchy. So I've been able to cast very thin pieces of metal and even some out of stainless steel or, or color it silver. So it looks like it's uh, almost like air, um, just like a liquid metal. And then I've also recently 
uh, over the last 10, 15 years, created a piece where I was able to crack it, break it, and put electricity inside of it so it shines out. So it's not even um, solid anymore in a way. You know, uh, you can kind of see into it, see through it. And I just wanted to uh, show that with technology today, uh, bronze sculpture doesn't have to be classical per se. It can still be contemporary and modern and very much speak about what it's like to be human beings today in today's era using these technologies. And in the images of your work, we can see that, um, I mean, the work is very evocative. There's a lot of emotion. How do people respond to the work? What do they say to you as they're experiencing it? You know, what, what do they see in the work? Well, I think some of the greatest um, compliments I've ever received are the people who don't expect that they are art collectors or art appreciators. Uh, they've said for years they they never were those kind of people who'd walk into a gallery or look at art, but then they found themselves uh, being spoken to by my work because really it's not about telling a story or a narrative of something that they don't know. It's really just about sharing my own personal emotions of being human and if I can be honest and true with that, then hopefully they find a piece of truth in their own selves by looking at the work. And I have many stories that I've uh, received from people around the world where they say it speaks to me, it speaks my language. Uh, I've had people use the images as their screensavers uh, on their computer, or uh, a couple of people have even tattooed the images on their bodies. Uh, people have, you know, uh, created these images as something that they almost, uh, in many ways, uh, can't live without. It inspires them. They don't have to necessarily run and spend money and collect the art, but uh, the greatest compliment is that they didn't expect to be the person who would love art, but the art spoke to them. And then before they knew it, they couldn't live without the imagery. And it was something that uh, reminded them of uh, a, greater, a greater part of them and a part that needed to be woken up. And that, to me, is the greatest compliment I could ever get. And I didn't want to make art that was, you know biblical or mythological or of telling of a story that really wasn't about human beings today. I'm just trying to tell the story about myself so that other people can understand it too. Take us back to um, your first sale. Um, do, do you remember where and when that was and how it occurred? I was leaving off to art school, but I had already worked with the Foundry for several years at that point and created a, a sculpture that I really thought was marketable, sellable. And I called a um, a gallery in my hometown of Carmel. And I said, can you put my sculpture in your gallery? And they said, well, you only have one. We're not going to do that. <laughs> and, you know, you need a body of work and you need a CV and you need a bio. And, you know, they just, you know, no is always the first, you know, response, right? And uh, I guess one of my greatest successes is that I never take no as the final answer, I always try to figure, I think of it as a starting point and how do I get around the word no? And so I said, well, you know, I would like you to see it before you, you say no to this. So I will bring it to you. And I took the sculpture to the gallery and they fell in love with it and they put it in their gallery window, even though I didn't have any other pieces to show on a body of work. And the very next day I went off to art school, Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Art. And 
a few weeks later, I got a phone call from the gallery saying, we just sold it. We need another one. <laughs> and, you know, sold it to who? And, you know, no, it was nobody I knew, just somebody I, who walked in off uh, the street. And that was the greatest feeling to know that a stranger, like not an aunt or an uncle or a friend of a friend, would put money down on something that I had made with my two hands. And that's when I realized that I could actually create an orbit of my own based on my own work and build a career out of it. So here I was at art school, sneaking upstairs to the foundry, uh, doing my own patinas and fulfilling orders for that entire year. I think I shipped about six or seven pieces that year, uh, working out of the the studio foundry at school, even though I wasn't even enrolled in the foundry classes. <laughs> it's pretty funny. And so was there ever any question in your mind that, that this was your vocation in life, that this would be your profession? No, I, I didn't allow the question to even, you know, come in. There were, there were days where, you know, it was dark and I didn't know how I'd pay bills and it seemed hopeless and scary and I was sleepless. But Within, you know, 48 hours, usually an angel would walk in to my studio and buy a sculpture from me. I mean, it just felt like the universe always sent me a signal that I was on the right track. From that first uh, relationship with the gallery in Carmel, how did your, um, you know, how did you get your work out there and how have you marketed? Are you showing in, in uh, various galleries around the country or are a lot of your sales through galleries or, or what's that process been? Well, uh, you know, the industry has changed a bit since I started. So my advice to others might be a little different today, but my, my own journey started, I guess, at Art Expo in New York City. Uh, it was 1999 and it was, I, I had bought a booth with another artist and shipped lighting and pedestals and everything out to New York city from Carmel and displayed about 10 pieces of mine from all different price ranges and sizes. And it was at that point at that show that I picked up, you know, five galleries or something like that. And every year, I think I went there for two or three years uh, following that. And I continued on. And, and in that respect, I was able to build up about 15 galleries. I stopped doing that after, you know, um, a couple years, because it was very commercial. And it was a great way to enter the industry, but it wasn't something I needed to keep doing. And over the last 25 years, I've really honed which galleries I want to be in and why which locations I want to be in. And because my, my body of work has now grown, you know, so deep, I have over a hundred different types of works. I'm able to really um, choose and pick which, which areas and which galleries I think best represent me. And so now I keep about 10 to 12 galleries at a time that uh, I exhibit in full time. And uh, that's been, that's been very rewarding. And again, another um, challenge, I think that, um, other artists and, and collectors probably don't think about a lot is just the tremendous amount of capital involved in carrying a large inventory of sculpture. Each each piece that you're casting, as you say, you know, is going through a foundry and has many people working on it, and then you've got that uh, that investment in that piece while it's out in the market. And and so, um, talk a little bit about uh, just the challenges of building your business um, and and creating that inventory. Yeah, it's true. It's been it's been something that, you know, seemed monumental at first. 
And you always have to keep an eye on it so that you have just enough, but not too much. Anybody that's involved in, in keeping inventory, you know, it's, it's a big issue, but you can't sell it if you don't have it. And, um, and then another thing that a lot of galleries probably don't understand is if it, if it goes off the floor, if some, if they sell it, they can't sell another one until you replace it. And that's one of the most frustrating things about bronze casting is it takes such a long time to create a bronze. You know, you're talking about two to three months. So that's two to three months of how many people have walked into that gallery looking for that same piece and it's not there. Um, but fast forward, I mean, that's the 90s where everybody wants the same piece that your neighbor has. Now it's a different kind of collector. Everybody wants something that nobody else has. So they walk in, they like this piece, but they don't buy it. They walk out, somebody else walks in, buys it. They walk back to see it again. It's gone. It's going to make them hungry again for something, you know? Uh, it makes them realize that the next time something's there that they fall in love with, they have to actually buy it right then and there. Act. So there is a... Um, a good, a good and a bad about, um, about having your inventory kind of, uh, sell off the floor and disappear. And then, you know, realize, make, make collectors realize that, you know, listen, these are limited bronzes. Um, they're handmade and there's an addition number on it. And when they sell out, you can't get them anymore. The price goes up as the addition sells out. And the best thing to do is find the, find the artist, go to the studio, see a clay when it's in process and invest in, you know, getting one of the first ones at a pre-casting cost because then they're getting in at the ground floor. It's like any kind of investment. Um, and I hate to say it's, it's business like that, but, um, it, it is fueled by cash. You know, uh, the more I sell, the more I can create. And I have a great appreciation for art collectors because they keep me busy in the studio. They keep me working. They keep me dreaming. They keep me producing things with my two hands that I feel like need to be said, uh, works that need to be out in the world. And if, if I don't have those people that invest in my work, then these ideas will die with me because, you know, they're only in my head until, until they're, you know, in 3d. So, um, I have a great appreciation for that. And the galleries are able to put these collectors and me together. If it wasn't for them, they're the matchmakers, you know, they, they put us together so that I have fuel to create and they have artwork that they can take home and, and remember, you know, the spirit and the soul that moved them in the first place. And Paige, how much, um, you know, if you, if you were to look at uh, a typical week or, or maybe think about it in terms of a month, how much of your time are you spending on the, the business side uh, versus the creative side of your art practice? Um, well, I try to spend, I'd say a, a quarter of my time on the business and the PR and a quarter of it on the production and then half on the creation. If I was to just look at it as far as, you know, a whole piece of the pie and whatever time I can use. Um, I do have people that help me at, at every corner. Uh, it really does take a team and I have a great team and we've been working together for a very long time. Um, 20 years or so. So we know each other really well. We've kind of all grown together. And because of that, um, you know, they, they know that sometimes if I'm slow to make a decision, then they can, they can hold my hand and we can make those decisions together and we get the work done and we get the, the business and the emails and the PR and everything out. But, you know, I'm, 
I have to wear all the hats. I have to kind of steer the ship as a COO, you know, which an artist is of their own career. They kind of have to look at it that way. They have to, they have to be able to do everything and, and see where the missing links are and what needs to be done and how to follow through. On the creative side, tell us a little bit about your approach to um, working in the studio. Or, you know, do you find yourself uh, ever in the studio waiting for the muse to strike? Um, is, is it a challenge to, to get to work? Or, or what, what's the process to, to get things going? My studio is always very busy. Uh, I, I never feel like I have difficulty tapping in. Um, there's times where I go in and I putter, meaning I have about 20 different sculptures going all at once. And sometimes I'm just going in to uh, touch every single one of them, get some ideas from them, or build armatures or clean everything up. It's a very organized studio. Everything has its place and everything's in its place. And that helps me feel like I have the space to create because when I create, everything's kind of chaotic and sloppy. I, I don't care about putting things back while I'm working. I'm really in the moment. So sometimes when there's kind of a calm in between and I'm not pulled to a, a particular piece, it's only because I, I'm taking that time to kind of uh, set the stage again in my studio for that for that time, and I'm putting everything back in its place, or I'm I'm building armatures, like I said. But when I have a live model into my studio, which I do quite frequently, uh, two to three times a week, it's very much about the energy of that person. I am I usually try to pick a model who is not um, a professional model who doesn't usually stand on on a stage and and do oh, this really? as a living. I like to find. Um, models who are new to the business or new to, to standing in front of an artist so that they can be really um, authentic and share with me their own life's strife or successes or whatever it is, what, what, what makes them who they are. And so I listen, I spend some time listening and then we come up with a pose. Sometimes we're drawing a lot at first. Sometimes we go straight into a clay sculpture because I have an idea and I want them to bring their own uh, physicality uh, and psychology and emotions to my sculpture that I'm working on. And I can create a sculpture um, from the beginning to the end in three or four hours if we're attuned with each other and we're really, uh, you know, clay goes fast, it flies. But, you know, 90% of the work is done in 10% of the time. And then 90% and then 10% of the work is done in 90% of the time, meaning that the last details, the last 10% of the sculpture where I'm breathing life into the soul of the sculpture, that takes a month, you know, for the sculpture to speak, for me to feel like there's actual weight behind the sculpture. There's actually breath in the lungs of the figure that I'm creating, um, that I can feel the fingertips, you know, and that, that takes a lot longer than just, you know, quickly blocking out the figure. But um, because I have 20 pieces going in the studio all the time, and some of them are quite contemporary and some of them are very classical in manner, I, I'm never bored. I always have a ton of things Something going and, it, and the energy is really exciting. Do you um, spend a lot of time out in your galleries and, and meeting collectors? Um, how often are you out uh, you, you know, interacting with the end clientele of the work? Yeah, that's a very good question. I probably don't do it enough, but um, for me, I do it just enough. If I like 
to hear what they have to say and I like to connect with them, but really where the work happens is in the studio. Um, and that's, you know, it's nice to hear what they, what they how the work makes them feel. And I feel to me in a lot of ways, they are creating the full circle. I, when I create a piece of work, it's kind of like a half circle, like a vessel, a cup. And when I hear what they have to say about the work and what it means to them, they've really finished the circle. They've drawn the remainder of that, of that other half and they've made it a complete piece. And sometimes I yearn for that, but most of the time I don't mind not having it. I kind of like sending out all these half circles and not knowing where they're going to land and who they're going to find and who they're going to speak to and allow it to just kind of keep me in a sense of um, not being uh, complete because it keeps me working. It keeps me making more. Uh, If I was absolutely satisfied, then I think I worry about not creating at such a frantic uh, level of of always wanting to make more, make new, say something that hasn't been said. So I like that dissonance that I I feel in my spirit, um, that unsettled sense that I need to keep creating. I do go, uh, I have collectors come into my studio and they watch me sculpt sometimes. Um, We do some like cocktail parties in my studio, which are lovely. Uh, Sometimes I go meet the collectors. I did um, an event recently where I actually walked them through the Met and we had a wonderful time where I got to take them to all these, uh, to look at all these sculptures from, you know, Greek and Roman periods, uh, Asian periods, uh, and then all the way up to contemporary modern. It was, it was a lot of fun. And then, um, uh, I'm going to Houston in December and, uh, sometimes I usually go out to San Francisco in January. There, there's things that keep me going all the time, uh, events. Uh, but I, I feel like when I get in an airplane, I, it tears me away from my studio a bit and, it takes me a long time to get grounded and get that rhythm back into my studio. So I prefer to kind of stay home. <laughs> this is a question I ask in almost um, every, every conversation that I have with artists. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it into two parts um, w- with you, Paige. But if you had uh, the, the first part, if you had a time machine and you could travel back and, and visit yourself at, at 17 or, or 21, um, you know, as you're just getting started in that career, what advice would you would you give yourself? I guess. One of the greatest things that I have come to find in my mid-career is the voice in my head that says, you know, you've got this. You own this. This is yours. Uh, Don't worry. The universe will provide, but everything that you need is already within you. And there's no sense to worry or stress or feel that Uh, You don't have enough or you need to be more because I really, and and now I feel like I have that, um, but I know that as a young person, I did not feel that way. And I think that's a really valuable thing to have. And I know you mentioned that the business has changed a lot over the years. So, um, you know, if you're talking to an artist today, a, a sculptor today who, who's just getting started, um, what advice might you give them as, as they launch into the art world? Well, I think a body of work is still really important. Um, and I really truly believe that you can teach the technical ability to make art, but you can't teach 
the message of making art, that burning part of what you need to say. So before embarking on a, a really large body of work, I think finding out what it is that, that makes you unique, that you need to say to the world in your own way is what, what needs to be honed and crafted with repetition. And I know that artists throughout the last century have had to kind of, um, they've gone to art school and all of that, but eventually they just lock themselves up in their studio for days and would just create, create, create until there was something that was, you know, uniquely theirs. And it's not like, a, it shouldn't be flashy and commercial. It should be authentic as much as possible. And I think that there are probably too many people that, that look at it like a uh, kind of a gadget of, you know, something that they can be known for, you know, recognized from across the street. But really, it needs to be something that speaks authentically to the viewer, where uh, somebody who might not be trained in art can always recognize that, oh, this is the artist, this is, this is recognizable throughout their body of work. And I, I hear them, I hear their voice. And I, I admire that because it is when you start creating consistently at that level that you can uh, have collectors that buy several of your pieces because they love seeing that part of you. They love seeing that voice. And galleries will do the same. Galleries will buy or show you because of that voice. And that has to be um, crafted and honed throughout, throughout a career. Paige, thank you so much for joining me for the uh, podcast today. It's been a real pleasure uh, visiting with you and getting to know a little bit about your background and your work. Thank you, Jason. I really enjoyed talking to you too. Thanks a lot. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure and visit red.blog.com to uh, view Paige's work and also to sign up for our mailing list to learn about future podcasts and receive art business news in your inbox. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you in the next podcast.